James we've been doing in the second half of the summer. If you're using the Bible in your seats, that's page 856. James chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verses 6. You know, I don't think I have ever heard a sermon on today's passage, at least the second part. I wonder why that is. I wonder why we're uncomfortable with James's warnings about the misery of God's judgment coming on the rich. Is it for the same reason, I wonder, if uh, or that we're a little nervous when we go to the dentist and they start poking around in our mouth and maybe find some cavities that we didn't want to know that we had? Maybe we don't want to know uh, what's going to be found in us that isn't healthy, that isn't right. It, it kind of reminds me of um, the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Did you know there was a great molasses flood in Boston? It it killed 21 people. It injured 150 others. On January 15th of 1919, an enormous steel vat containing 2.3 million gallons of molten molasses burst in Boston. And hot, sticky waves of syrup, 30 feet tall, were released, destroying buildings, crushing freight cars, wagons, automobiles, and drowning people. It turns out that that enormous tank, which was 50 feet tall and 240 feet around, had been poorly designed, and that company officials knew about the constant leaks. But do you know how they responded? They responded by painting the the, the tank dark brown to match the leaking molasses. Out of sight, out of mind, right? They knew that the molasses vat was dangerous, but they didn't do anything about it. They just hoped for the best. And that's a temptation we all face. To avoid the diagnosis and just hope the bad news goes away. Well, here James is going to help us to avoid the disaster that can come from acting that way. He's here to give us a wake-up call from God about wealth, about money, about possessions. I've titled today's sermon, Diagnosing Affluenza, because James is like a doctor in today's passage, a financial doctor, a spiritual doctor, and he's diagnosing two common diseases which have to do with money, with affluence. James does this diagnosing by giving us two sample patients, each of which has one of the two diseases. There are two sorts of people that we'll no doubt recognize. And and the first type of person described at the end of chapter 4 is um, a business person. These were the the merchant class in James' day. They were a group who realized there was money to be made by conducting trade and business. And and so these people would invest, let's say, a thousand, invest in buying maybe a thousand pounds of figs from a local Jewish farm. And they'd load them on a ship. And they'd sail them to, let's say, Italy, and they'd sell them there, hopefully for a profit. And, and then maybe they'd take that profit, and um, in Italy, they'd buy uh, pottery or textiles, and they'd ship them back to Judea, and they'd try to sell those for a profit. And, and some merchants were very good at this, or they were lucky, and they made loads of money. And others struggled and failed to make a profit. So let's call these people the new money people. They're, they're ambitious, they're driven to get ahead, they're, they're working hard to do better for themselves and their families. 
They, they likely dream of becoming like the second group of people whom James describes in chapter 5, who are the old money people. They're the landed gentry. They were born into their money. They inherited it from their parents, maybe their grandparents before them. And so they're the aristocracy. You see, back then, the most stable and dependable source of wealth and investment wasn't a business. It wasn't stocks or bonds. It was land. And so in New Testament times, a few wealthy families owned most of the land and therefore most of the wealth. Thousands upon thousands of acres they owned, worked by countless slaves and serfs and unskilled workers. And, and so you've got the new money people and you've got the old money people. And they're like two patients whom James, uh, Dr. James, is going to diagnose. He'll first, we're going to see him do three things. First of all, he's going to examine them and comment on their symptoms. Then he's going to offer a diagnosis. He's going to say what form of affluenza they have. And then he's going to prescribe a cure. So let's take a look at each of them. First, the new money people. What are their symptoms? Well, very simply, they're busy making business plans and financial forecasts and economic strategies for how they're going to accumulate wealth. Verse 13, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there carrying on business and we'll make money. So those are their symptoms. Then James, Dr. James, moves straight on to the diagnosis. Thanks, Kim. People with this sort of affluenza, he says, suffer from arrogance and boasting, and this boasting is evil. Verse 16. You boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Now, I don't know about you, but I find James's diagnosis surprising. After all, it's not easy having your own business. You've got to fight and scrap every day to put food on the table. I mean, when you're an employee of somebody else, you show up to work, you collect your paycheck, and you let your boss worry about all the big stuff. But when you work for yourself, it's your job to make sure that you turn a profit, that your creditors get paid back, that, that product failures and customer complaints get addressed, that changes in the market get responded to, that you stay a step ahead of the competition. It's hard. It's a lot of pressure. You need a certain amount of, of drive, of chutzpah to be in business for yourself. You need to think positive, right? Which is why there are so many books on positive thinking directed at salespeople and people who work for themselves. But Dr. James has a different take on it. He says, no, what I see too often is arrogance and boasting. You, you see, or James says, uh, rather, James says, what I see is, is a big tendency to rely on yourself, on your own ingenuity and your business sense instead of relying on God. And in my professional opinion, James says, this is evil. Really, James? Evil? That's a strong word. Well, let's move on to the doctor's prescription uh, to cure this affluenza and see if he can convince us. The cure, James says, is twofold. First, it's to remember the shortness and the fragility of your life. And then second, it's to put your trust in the will and in the plans of one much greater than yourself. And these two are related because when we realize who the sovereign eternal Lord of all creation really is compared to who we are, 
our life has a way of coming into perspective. When we realize that, that God made the universe out of nothing and knows every star by name and every one of the millions of trel, uh, tr- cells in our body, that, that God was there when the Egyptians made the pyramids, when Julius Caesar was assassinated, when Martin Luther reformed the church, when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, when Babe Ruth hit his 714th home run, God was there. The eternal God has seen it all. God has, has seen people come and go and seen nations rise and fall. And long after we're gone, God will still be there. Still overseeing everything, working out his, his sovereign plans, looking out for and caring for his children who trust in his son. When we realize all this and when we take it to heart, arrogance and self-reliance and boasting are replaced with a chastened humility and a simple trust in God. Notice James doesn't fault the merchants for trying to make a living. That's not the problem he has with them. What, what he faults is, is, is the tendency, the arrogant tendency, to get caught up in our own plans and our own abilities and our own ingenuity to make all this work. And we do, right? These new money people had a perspective which had gotten badly skewed and out of touch with reality. The the stresses of of trying to make your financial future will do this to you. Especially when you're surrounded with lots of other people chasing the same thing. We, We lose sight of the fact that when we step back and we look at life in light of God, we are on this earth for only a little while. Our lives are short and vulnerable. And and there's a far greater purpose, a far greater Lord who is over all things. And so James says, before making your plans, you should say, if it be the Lord's will, we will do this or that. Now these aren't magic words. James isn't insisting that we simply tack them on the end of every plan we make and it's all going to be good. Have you ever met someone like that who who they end every sentence with, if the Lord wills. You know, on my way home from book club tonight, I'll stop and pick up a dozen eggs and some milk, if it be the Lord's will. No, saying the words is not the point. The point is, you are not in control of your life. God is in control of your life. So remember it and live like it. And if saying the words helps you to do that, then great. But here's the real question. When was the last time you stepped back, really stepped back, maybe lay down on a hilltop on a starry night, maybe spent a quiet week in the country, away from your plans, away from your career, away from your hard work, and you took stock? Life is short. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, verse 14? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, James reminds us. Are you living the short time you have in in tune, in step with what really matters, with God's guidance, with God's purposes for you, in in step, in in, in tune with the, the purpose for which God has put you on this earth? Or have you gotten distracted? Have you gotten caught up in the rat race? I have a friend, he, he works for himself, he has a small business, 
And, and he once told me that he wanted to have a spiritual life. He wanted to have a relationship with God. But he said, first, I've got to take care of the financial part of my life for myself and, and for my family. To, to get that security. And, and once I have that, then I'll look into God. Well, James says that's arrogance. That's evil. And that's foolish. As if, if you put God first, God wouldn't help you take care of everything else. But we get distracted, don't we? We get, we get caught up in, in climbing and achieving. It reminds me of something I once read in, in A Daily Bread, the little devotional. It, it says, an article in a San Francisco newspaper once reported that a young man found a $10 bill once on the street and resolved that from that time on he would never lift his eyes while walking. <laughs> the paper went on to say that over the years he accumulated, among other things, 29,516 buttons, 54,172 pins, 12 cents, a bent back, and a miserly disposition. But he also lost something, the glory of sunlight, the radiance of the stars, the smiles of friends, and the freshness of blue skies. It goes on, I'm afraid that some Christians are like that man. While they may not walk around staring at the sidewalk, they're so engrossed in the things of this life that they give little attention to spiritual or eternal values. They lose the upward look. Well, that's James' diagnosis of this first patient with affluenza. Then James turns to the second patient, the old money person. Here are this person's symptoms. This person has already arrived, financially speaking. They have more money than they know what to do with. Their closets are full of clothes they never wear. They have more money in investments than most people will ever see. And it sits there. So much, so long, that the gold is eventually tarnishing and the clothes are being ruined by moths. And the interesting thing about this type of person is that there's no evidence in James that any of these type of people are going to hear James's letter. Because for James, throughout his letter, we've been looking at James this summer, the rich are wicked people. They're not followers of Jesus sitting in church. They're those guys out there. You see, from James's perspective, if you follow Jesus, you wouldn't still be so rich. Because Jesus taught his followers to share their possessions with the poor. And so the rich weren't that often attracted to the gospel. What did Jesus say to the rich man who came to him? He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man like you to enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you want to have eternal life, Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And, and what did the rich man Zacchaeus do when he decided to follow Jesus? Right off, he gave half of his possessions to the poor and he promised to pay back anyone he cheated four times what he owed them. That's what it looks like to be rich and to follow Jesus. And so William Barclay, the famous Scottish Bible teacher from the last century comments, it was a simple fact that the gospel offered so much to the poor and demanded so much from the rich that it was the poor who were swept into the church. St. Basil, all the way back in the 4th century, summarizes well what the common view of the early church was toward riches and poverty. 
He said, the bread that you possess belongs to the hungry. The clothes that you store in boxes belong to the naked. The shoes rotting by you belong to the barefoot. The money that you hide belongs to anyone in need. You wrong as many people as you could help. Do you know where Basel and the early church got this idea? They got it from Jesus and from the Bible. And so James tears into the rich, even though there's probably a few to none in the churches he's writing to. But my guess is James says what he says anyway for two reasons. First, as a comfort to the poor in the church who are being oppressed by the rich. And second, as a warning to the new money people who are trying so hard to get rich. James is saying, be careful what you wish for and what you are pursuing. Bruce Walkie, who was a, a wonderful professor of mine when I was in seminary, a, a godly man just steeped in the Old Testament. He was once giving a, a chapel talk and he gave an illustration about a bull, a, a male cow out in a big field, enjoying the sunshine and the fresh beer, uh, breeze. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> the fresh breeze, the sunshine, the green grass. <laughs> Strong, powerful, right? A bull, unafraid, free to do what he wants and to eat all that he wants, not a care in the world. And you could envy him, except that he's headed to the butcher. Likewise, Walkie says, and James says, with the rich. It's, it's foolish to envy them without noticing what their end will be. Walkie then recounts a story about a man who, who had an angel visit him and the angel promised him one wish. The, the man thought for a minute and then he knew just what he wanted. He, he asked for next year's newspaper for that same date. And he turned where? To the financial section, right? And he carefully studied the stocks. He was just thinking about the killing that he'd make until he glanced across the page and noticed his own picture and name in the obituary column. That's the perspective Dr. James is trying to give us. And so he describes the symptoms of, of the old money rich and their affluenza. They, they hoard wealth, verse 3. They sock away more money than they need. They, they live in luxury and self-indulgence, verse 5. They live a better life, a more comfortable life, a more pleasurable life than they need. They aren't afraid to, to spend their money, to have what they want, to satisfy their own desires. Now again, what's wrong with this? Isn't this what we, what we all do to the extent that we're able? Or sometimes even if we aren't able, we use a credit card to have what we want anyway. Yeah, it is what we do. And for James, it's profoundly unchristian. Because to follow James is, is or rather to follow Jesus, is, is to use what extra you have to help those who do not have. This is one major way we fulfill the greatest commandment, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Remember, James said that back in chapter 2, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and you do nothing about their needs. What good is it? If you act that way, we saw James had said, your faith in Jesus is dead. You don't have real faith. All right, well, then James moves on to his diagnosis. 
He says that, that by living this way, holding on to and enjoying for themselves far more than they need, the old money people have become wicked oppressors of the poor, James says. We may assume that, that the rich have wealth because they're luckier or smarter or harder workers than everyone else, but, but James says no. They have so much wealth because they're oppressing the poor. Now question, how are they oppressing the poor? James says in verse 4, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And verse 6, You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So here's the key question. Is, is James just calling the rich oppressors because they didn't pay their workers what they'd promised and and because they'd condemned and murdered the innocent? Or is James also calling the rich oppressors because they're holding on to their wealth and not sharing it with the poor who are in desperate need? In other words, are the rich people's sins just the sins of commission, the bad things that they've done? Or are the rich people's sins also the sins of omission, the good things they have not done? Why are the rich oppressors? Is it because they're stealing from and murdering the poor? Or is it because they have way more than they need and they indulge their every desire, but they don't lift a finger to help the poor or to pay them a fair wage or a living wage? The answer, I think, is that it's both. We already saw back in James 2 that James clearly expects those who have to help those who have not. And we saw that James got this from the Bible and that James got this from Jesus, his brother. Because remember, he's the brother of Jesus. He knows what Jesus' heart is. So anyway, let's picture what's going on here. Let's say you're, you're rich. You're, you're Jeff Bezos rich or you're Donald Trump rich. And I'm being, you know, fair to both sides of the political spectrum here. Um, you have lots of workers who do all of your work for you. Clearly, God expects you to pay your workers what you owe them. But what if they don't do a good enough job, at least by your standards? Does God still expect you to pay them? And, and then what if the going wage isn't really enough for the average person to get by on? And you're making money hand over fist and you have way more than you need. Does God expect you to share your extra profits with the poor or to raise their, or to raise their wages above market levels? Well, here's the problem with these kind of questions for the rich that James is addressing. They're not even in a position to answer these questions because they're so out of touch. They're living in great luxury. They're enjoying the good life. They're profiting from, from the workers who are slaving away out in their fields. And we know people back then lived hand to mouth. That's why the Old Testament required that you pay your workers every day. Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired worker. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they are counting on it. They needed their daily wage to buy food for their family. If they didn't get paid for whatever reason, their family did not eat the next day. And, and so what you have here is people who are struggling, and you have the rich who are out of touch and oblivious to it and insulated from it. 
out of sight, out of mind. They just say, so what if for whatever reason a harvester doesn't get paid? No big deal, not my problem. I'm just going to keep on enjoying my luxuries. Today, of course, those who grow and harvest our food and who make our clothes and gadgets are far away. Do we know how they're doing? Do we know how they're doing? Do we know how much they make and what sort of conditions they live and work in? Do we care? Are we bothered? Well, finally, James moves on to prescribe a cure for the rich. And notice there is none. There's no cure for this advanced state of affluenza. Only judgment. It's too late for them. Their doom is already sure, James says. The molasses tank is already bursting. Their name and picture are already in the obituary column. This is a judgment oracle here that that James is giving. And he's borrowing heavily from the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 5, 8 to 9, for instance. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. You own all the land. Everyone else is just a worker on your plantation. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Isaiah says, surely the great houses will become desolate and the fine mansions left without occupants. Jeremiah 12, 3. Lord, you drag them off like sheep to be butchered. You set them apart for the day of slaughter. We know from history that in 70 AD, not long after James wrote this, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and many of the Jewish people. And many of the landed aristocracy of that day were destroyed. And so by the time James wrote this letter, it's already too late for for many of these old money people. But it was not too late for the new money people and for James's congregation. It's not too late for you and me to take warning, to listen to the doctor, to ask, do I have affluenza? How badly do I have it? To evaluate our lives and ask, what are we striving so hard for anyway? What is our life, the, the few years that, that God gives us on this earth which go by so quickly? What does God want us to do with the time that we have? And if God has blessed us with some wealth, with more than we need to live, then what are we doing with it? Are we passing it on to those who need it more than us? Or are we indulging ourselves? I think if we're honest, an awful lot of us have affluenza. The only question is, how bad is yours? How bad is mine? And what are we going to do about it? Let's pray. God, these are your words to us. They're very uncomfortable, hard words for us to hear. And yet, you have spoken them to us out of love, out of concern for us out of love, out of concern for the poor who you care about, even if we don't. And I pray that you would let them sink deeply into our hearts and transform our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit um, would give us the grace and the power we need to make changes and to adopt your heart. Thank you for your patience and your grace toward us. Amen.